like a lot of things, you know, this statement sounds true, like a lot of the statements we've been evaluating in this series, but it's not entirely biblical. The last thing I want to do here this morning is suggest that there is like a hierarchy of sin in which we rate and rank uh, to determine which sins are the worst ones, right? Like that's not the goal here at all. It only fuels our self-righteousness, which is a huge problem anyway, but sin is sin and that is true. But that does not mean that they are all the same. In fact, I want you to catch this thought. While all sin is equally wrong, not all sin is equally bad. Sin equally condemns the sinner, that's for sure. But it's not all equally bad. The things things Jesus said, right, that seem to suggest that all sins are basically the same, are comments that are actually given to rebuke the self-righteous from trusting in their righteousness. He's not, when he says certain things, he's not equating sin, all sin as the same. What he's doing is he's addressing people who think that they're better than others, who think that their sin isn't as bad as others, and, and, and he's addressing them because they're, they're trusting in their own righteousness. Hey, we are in uh, week four of a teaching series uh, called Not True. Um, excited about this series, uh, where we have been uh, so far. Really um, been teaching around this idea that it sure seems like um, for so many people, their, their thinking and their beliefs are often held together by these you know, short, sort of catchy, sticky, fortune cookie type statements that, that are essentially superstitious beliefs, right? So, um, you know, statements that we believe and we repeat really in an effort to try to make sense of things in life. Like, why did that happen? Well, and we say certain things to try to, to, try to just understand how life Works, and I think that most of the time when we say these kinds of things, it's it's usually when um, uh, we feel like we need to say something, but we're not exactly sure what to say. So we may feel like like we need to comfort someone who's struggling, and, and we just kind of offer up a little a little a little statement, a little a little thing. Uh, we may feel like we need to explain something or give a piece of advice, and that's when we usually say things like, um, "Hey, hey, man, everything happens for a reason. Hey, hey, just just." Don't, don't worry about it. Everything happens for a reason. It's going to be all right. Or, hey, um, you know, don't, don't you know that uh, uh, only God can judge you? Only God can judge me? Or, man, just, just follow your heart. You're not sure what to do. Just follow your heart. Or, man, hey, all sin is basically the same, okay? You're going to be all right. Or uh, just remember that, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. And we, we say these things, right? Uh, we, 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 we say these kinds of things, we repeat them really in an effort to, um, to, to, to kind of comfort ourselves as we try to make sense of life. Um, and I think because they're so popular, so prevalent, so common, uh, somewhere along the way we can begin to believe that these things actually come from Scripture. They, they, like, now, now like, did, didn't Jesus, where did Jesus say that? Like, like I know that's in the Gospels, right? And, or the Apostle Paul wrote that somewhere. Um, but, but, but did they? And what if some of the statements that we so often repeat to ourselves and to others are actually based on a misunderstanding? What if Jesus never said that? What if they're actually not true, right? And so this has been the idea of this series that each week we've been tackling one of the common Christian cliches that we hear uh, really to try to understand what the Bible has to say about it. And in week one of this series, we tackled the phrase, everything happens for a reason. And what we found out is that 
this isn't so much a, uh, an idea that comes from God as it is an idea that comes from Marilyn Monroe, right? Uh, two weeks ago, we tackled the phrase, only God can judge me, and we found out, hey, this isn't so much an idea that comes from God as it is one that comes from Tupac, you know? Uh, last week, we, were ta- we talked about, you know, this idea of just follow your heart, like do you, and we found out that this is, this is really an idea that comes from Steve Jobs and Woody Allen, right? And we kind of felt a little, a little uncomfortable with some of those, some of those uh, examples. And uh, this week, I want us to push into another one, and, and it is common. Um, I think a lot of people use it. It's really common in the church, too, um, and that is this idea um, that all sin is basically the same, that all sin is basically the same. I think I got it back. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> okay. All right. My eyes are going to be like uh, struggling. Okay, so all sin is basically the same. And we want to look at this today. So uh, this may be something that you have heard from time to time, certainly common in the church. It's a phrase that we can at times use to essentially let ourselves off the hook. Um, this is uh, where, you know, we think to ourselves, you know, all right, I'll admit it. I might have done something wrong, but it wasn't that bad. There's plenty of people doing worse things than me, <laughs> you know, besides all sins basically the same, and you're no better than I am. You know, this is like we rationalize it this way, and so this phrase, all sin is basically the same, has kind of become the yeah, but of religious morality and spirituality. Like, like who are you to really judge me? And it enables us at times to blame shift, to even deflect responsibility so if you think about it, you know, someone points out something to you that you're doing wrong, oftentimes we click, quickly do the same thing back to them, right? Like to sort of throw them off our scent or off our trail. I, I think of like, uh, uh, you know, responses like, you know, I, I know that I did something wrong, but so did you and you're no better than me. So who are you to, you know, you know, this kind of rationally or uh, the way we rationalize it. Um, we are in an interesting point in our life with our uh, seven-year-old twins. Uh, they just turned seven, uh, and they are so much fun, uh, and they, they bring so much laughter to our family, but they um, additionally bring uh, a lot of screaming and a lot of fighting. And, um, and so on occasion, every day, I will hear <laughs> screaming in, in somewhere in the house and, cr- and, then, and then immediate, like, hysterical crying, and I run into the room and like, you know, one sister's like, like in pain and the other one's just like staring at them angry, get their hands in their pockets. And I'm like, hey, like what just happened? Did you just, did you just punch your sister in the throat? Like what is going on here? And, uh, and, and, and then the, the, they'll be like, yeah, but, you know, she wouldn't play with me and she said I was weird. Like, and I'm going like, hey, look, that's not the same thing. Okay, like, like. I get that that bothers you, but it's, it, it's not the same thing. You can't be punching your sister in the throat. Like, we got to go see a doctor now. What are you doing? Well, the problem is that as adults, like, we do this same thing too. Yeah, but you also have problems. You have no business talking to me about my problems when you have plenty yourself. And we blame shift. We deflect. We let ourselves off the hook because everybody has problems too. I'm not the only one. It's not that bad. There's people doing worse things than me. And I want you to kind of look at this, this thought on the screen here. We can tend to think that if, if the person drawing attention to the wrong in my life has any wrong in their life, then I get to ignore them altogether because even if I am wrong, 
I'm not wrong if the wrong person told me I'm wrong. You ever rationalize life this way? You know, a little, little bit like, like, all right, like what I did or what I said may not be okay, but I'm certainly not gonna hear it from them. Like they're not allowed to talk to me about that. I know that there's stuff in their life. And so it doesn't matter if what they said is, is, is true or not. Like, are they really gonna get on their moral high horse and try to tell me what is right and what is wrong in my life? And so I think that this is where we've gotta start, right? Like, like with this idea of like right and wrong and how we evaluate this phrase that all sin is basically the same or all sin is equal, we gotta start by kind of, kind of looking at right and wrong and trying to define it. And so I wanna back up. When scripture says something is wrong, it uses the word sin. So every time, right, like when something is wrong, it's this idea that this is sin, and it comes from this Hebrew word avira. Let me, let me show you this thought on the screen. Sin stems from the Hebrew word avira, which literally means to cross over or to violate a boundary. So like defining sin this way is where we get the phrase, so-and-so just crossed the line. Right, you just, just cross the line, yeah. Like here was the line and you're like way past the line, right? This is where we get this idea. Uh, that there's a boundary, that there's limits to the way something works and someone has crossed over or they have violated that boundary, they've completely ignored it. So the question then is, what are the lines? What are the lines between right and wrong and, and then who gets to draw those lines? So to really answer this kind of question, we have to like back up and really define like a Hebrew mindset, how like how a, how a Hebrew, Hebrew person would, would think about this type of, of, of question because our faith is deeply rooted in Hebrew tradition and Judaism. And so if you try to, if you would try to step into a Hebrew worldview with me for a moment, like the, their belief is that the world was created right, that, that the cosmos, the entire world and universe was created, that it didn't just happen by accident, that it was created by an intelligent designer with a, with a degree of intentionality, and, and, and that when we who are created by the creator willingly align ourselves with the intentions of our creator, then we flourish. And when we don't, then we, we won't, right? This is, this is the really the Hebrew worldview. We do the things that God wants us to do and life goes well. We don't do the things that, the, that God wants us to do and things won't. So then, so then how do you know what the intentions of your creator are? And again, the ancient Hebrews believed that the creator God communicated his intentions or his law to them through scripture. This was sort of his code of how to live his way. And when you read through the scriptures, in fact, specifically all throughout the Torah, we find language that basically says this, that if, if you live this way, you'll be blessed. And if you live that way, you'll be cursed. It's literally, like, it's all throughout. There seems to be these things connected to blessings and curses that we see in Scripture. And sometimes we can imagine you know, God being punitive as if he's up there like handing out spankings from heaven and that's just like a little bit silly to think that way. That's really not what God is doing. But really what this is, is something that, that we all understand at least on a basic level of some sort because what is essentially being communicated through this language in the scriptures 
is that everything produces something. Everything produces something. You think about this. In your life, every thought, every action, every belief produces something. So the scriptures really teach that there is this, this cause and effect to everything that happens. And so it would be really great, right, if there were some effects that we didn't like, that weren't healthy, that weren't helpful to our lives, to know what was causing them. You know, like this is, this is why, you know, evaluating those things is important. And it seems like God, God wants us to know how cause and effect works on a cosmic, on a cosmic scale. Um, and, and so it's just really interesting to look, at, to look at life this way through kind of this Hebrew lens, this cause and effect. If I live the way God wants me to live, like it seems like things are going to go okay. And if I don't, like, like then, then I'm going to kind of go out on my own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture beyond like the guardrails he's put in place and uh, things aren't going to go well for me. This idea of right and wrong. And if I do something wrong, the Bible really defines that as sin. Well, what is sin? Again, uh, trying to define terms. I think a good way to define sin is this way, that sin is an attitude or an action. So it could be either one or both. It's an attitude or an action that is out of alignment with the way God made the world to work. And I think this is probably the most generic definition for sin that we could come to, but I think the simplicity of this is actually super helpful. Like, we all understand what an action is, right? To act on something. I think we all understand how sin can be this, can be an action. Like, why did you do that? Why did you punch your sister in her neck, like what were you thinking? You know, like that's an action. That's something that is not okay. But, but I think it might be more difficult for us to, to evaluate sin along the lines of thought or attitude. And, and this is where, where we start talking about like our patterns of thinking. Not just an occasional thought, not just a random thought that pops in your mind, but an attitude is a pattern of thinking. It's a thought process that you visit and revisit over and over and over again until it becomes a part of who you are. And this is really the kind of the idea of, of sin, right? That it's an attitude or it is an action that is out of alignment with the way God made the world to work. So why, why does this matter? Why is understanding what is right and wrong so important? And why is avoiding sin something we should do? And why should we devote time and energy to, to thinking about this, this stuff. Well, because, because God set up the world like this, and for us to really understand how to live our life, we gotta evaluate it through this lens. I wanna read a handful of verses to try to help connect the dots of where we're going today. Uh, number one, uh, Romans 6.23, one of my favorite verses, and I, I quote it probably a handful of times a year, um, so you may get tired of it, but it's awesome. Um, and, and uh, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know that verse. The first part here, the, the, the wages of sin is death, is what Paul tells us. Like, this term wages is a word that we don't use a whole lot anymore, you know, like, uh, but it means payment, it means paycheck, it means your earnings. Uh, none of us uh, probably go into our employer anymore and say, I need my wages, you know, like we say, I need my paycheck. But it, it, so it's a little bit more old-fashioned of a term, but, but this is really what it means, that the payment or the paycheck for sin is death, that sin earns you death, that it produces death. Now, 
This doesn't necessarily mean that when you sin, you're gonna drop dead immediately, all right? This isn't what that, that means, even though there's a few stories about this in Scripture, which are really kind of uh, crazy to read about, but it's very rare for something like that to happen. What this really means, what the Scripture really means is that when someone sins, sin then introduces what we're gonna call a death spiral into, um, into the thing it's connected to. So, so, so death begins to kind of enter into that thing. And I, I know that many of us have probably experienced this. If you, if you think about, um, about a relationship, you think about the, how the wages of sin is death, the payment for sin is death. When you think about the payment for certain attitudes or certain actions in a relationship, what is the payment? The relationship begins to crumble. That's what it's earned you. Right? when there's certain behaviors or things that have been allowed into a relationship, and then it begins to slowly die. I think we understand this physically in terms of our, our physical health, that our body needs certain things in order to survive. And if we starve our body of those things, like rest, like nutrition, like exercise, our body slowly deteriorates because we've let our body, look, cross over the boundary of how it was made to function, Okay? What Scripture seems to communicate over and over and over again is, is this idea that the, the principle of sin producing death applies to everything that God made. And if you begin to rebel against these things with your attitudes and actions, over time it creates a sort of spiritual death in your soul. And I think none of us want this. In fact, I think a lot of us would want to avoid this, right? So how do we do that? We can start to kind of, kind of rationalize it like this. So like, all right, what sins do I need to stay away from so that I can avoid this kind of spiritual death, uh, this like eventual blindness to what is good and holy and right? Which sins do I need to pay attention to the most? And you're not gonna like this part uh, because the answer is all of them. It's all of them. Right, James 2.10 says this. It says, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. I, have to, I hate that verse. But when it comes to the way that God has designed us to function, what Paul is saying here is that we all have found ways in which to rebel against it. We've all found ways. To, to go against, to push back by aligning ourselves with certain attitudes and certain actions that go against God's standard. We've all done this, and perhaps unknowingly or unintentionally, what happens is we invite death into our lives in this way. But it's not just that we do some bad things. Sometimes it's that we, it's that we avoid doing good things, right? Because James sort of piles on to this idea in James 4 where he says this, he says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Well, that's really interesting because it's, it's more than just like an action, it's also an inaction, right? It's, it's, it's when we don't do the things that God wants us to do. It's not just about being careful to avoid certain things, it's also this understanding that we are made to participate in certain things, to do good things, to, to be proactive about certain things in this world and and uh, that's really, really, really important. And so we all understand what it means to, to basically invite spiritual or relational death into our lives through doing or thinking some wrong things and then also by not doing good things. But Jesus then adds on to this conversation by saying something that's like really, really, really challenging and 
something that we'd really probably like to skip over and pretend wasn't in there. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a tough verse. Um, and what's going on here is that he's referring to one of the Ten Commandments, right? One of the expectations that God has, the standard of God, handed down by their creator, right? And so Jesus, who is God, right, he adds to this commandment, right? He says, you have heard it said. So he's, he's hearkening back to uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and, and, and the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, let me just tell you what it really means and, 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 and so this is tough. He says, I tell you, like, that if you just have this stuff in your heart, you've, 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 you've violated the law. And so what does this mean? Because it sort of sounds like Jesus is saying, listen, 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 all sin is basically the same. All sin is equal. So if you're someone who lusts, you might as well not, not stop there. Instead, just go all the way because you've already broken the law and basically that's the same thing. It, it might, you might be able to think that. But that's, that's actually not what Jesus is saying. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, like, if lust is as bad as adultery, you might want to address the issue of lust in your life. You might want to, like, look at that. You might want to, want to not just, like, leave that in there and think that it's okay because it's not that. It's not as bad as that. Look at this thought. Jesus isn't saying that our selfish actions aren't as bad as we think they are. He's saying that our selfish attitudes are just as bad, if not worse. Right? This idea of like repetitive thought patterns where we've gotten locked in this loop of how we look at life, how we look at ourselves, others can be one of the most destructive things about us. And yet nobody knows about it. Right? What we allow to exist inside of us, in our heart and in our mind that, that people are unaware of is just as destructive in terms of a spiritual death as if we were to actually act on those things. That's what, that's what Jesus is really getting at. And so you gotta, you gotta kind of like pause and go like, why would Jesus say something like that? Like it just doesn't seem fair. Like, right? Like why would he take this definition of sin that they have had for so long and, and, and make it more difficult and make it more broad, make it more impossible, right, to, to live up to? Like why would he take sin from being strictly like external actions, which is how they understood it, these things that we do, why would he bring it internally to the things that we think, to our heart? And, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push on something right here that may make you uncomfortable, and, and that's all right, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this, spend a lot of time trying to explain this. Why would Jesus do this? I, I think it's so that we would feel guilt, so that we would feel guilt, not to be confused with shame not to be confused with shame. There is a big difference. And the reason why some of you are feeling uncomfortable with the idea of guilt uh, is because, you know, we can live without the understanding that guilt and shame are actually two separate things. Look at this definition. Shame says, I am bad, and there's no way to change or escape it. But guilt says, I did something bad, and I need to make amends for it. Two separate things. Shame, shame is like an identity, Shame is an identity that you take on. It's where you continue to live perpetually, uh, uh, you know, in, in your past, 
You continue to allow like, like past mistakes and things that you've done to, de- to define who you are still and what your future is going to look like. Uh, it's an identity. This is who I am. This is who, I, uh, who I'm always going to be. I'm never going to be able to change. Guilt says, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely just did something wrong. Like, that's not good. Like, I need to do something to make it right. You know? Uh, this is why, like, you know, so many men have, have gotten good at bringing flowers home, right? Like, they making amends for something they said that was dumb. A lot of people in our culture have kind of merged these two separate things into one cohesive concept, leading us to believe that no one should feel these things ever. But they're not a cohesive concept. And here's why. Because we should feel guilty when we are guilty. We should feel guilty when we are guilty. Guilty. This is the way in which we were made to function. And even though part of you may not like this idea, and, and, and there's a part of me that revolts uh, to, to this too. Uh, part of me that wants to push back against it philosophically. I would say that most of us actually agree with this idea in terms of practicality. Like again, I'm gonna use children because that's my world. Um, but, but, you know, if you have a kid who hypothetically is throwing a huge fit, and you're trying to calm them down, and they get so angry that they take the iPad uh, and, they, and they throw it onto the ground and, and, it, and, and the screen shatters, um, right? What happened? You, like, send them to their room after you, um, you know, yell at them, of course, and you send them to their room, and, and uh, you let some time go by so you can calm down and find Jesus again. And eventually what happens is you go, you go into their room and you talk to them, right? Like an adult, because you, you know, you got to be, you got to give time so that you're not acting at their level. You have to be able to come into the room as an adult, and like, what is it that you want to hear from them in that moment when you come in to to speak to them? You want to hear from them that they feel bad, right? That they're sorry, because they did something that is wrong. We want to hear them understand that their selfishness costs other people. We want them to make amends. We want them to repair the relationship. Why do we do that? Because we understand that guilt isn't entirely a bad thing. It's not entirely wrong. It's not entirely bad. We understand that there are really only two types of people who don't feel any sort of guilt, and those are psychopaths and sociopaths, right? And I don't think we're trying to raise those kinds of human beings. So, like, like where they have no capacity uh, to feel sympathy or remorse of, of, of any kind. Like, we understand that guilt isn't entirely a bad thing. But here's a really important thought. There is a healthy role that guilt is intended to play in our lives because guilt is good, except when we wallow in it and refuse to listen to and appropriately act upon it. It's good except when it's not. Like when we don't leverage it for what it's really for, guilt's there to help us by letting us know that we need to make a change. This isn't okay. Gotta got make a shift. That we're living incongruent with the intentions of our creator and until we change, that guilt is intended to kind of stay with us. It's, it's really there to kind of remind us, hey, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this until... We, we basically ignore long enough that our heart and our conscience become so hardened and so calloused. Um, it, it's, it's that seared conscience that the Bible talks about 
uh, to where now we no longer feel guilt over things that we should feel guilt over. Do you know that there's actually no place in the New Testament where any of the writers ever bring up the idea of guilt um, as a whole being bad? There's just no concept about this in the, in the New Testament. Uh, we understand, like, condemnation. Like, you know, they're, they're, therefore there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, John 3, 17, uh, that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Right? We understand that. We understand shame is not okay. We understand shame is wrong. Guilt is different. Guilt is different. And so maybe you're here, right, and you're thinking about this, and you're going, okay, uh, I understand how my actions can affect and impact other people at times. I get that. I get that. And, uh, and, and, and I know that... that uh, uh, that, that I, can, I can impact people in a way that would require me to make amends with them. Like, I've had to do that before. I understand that. But, uh, you know, uh, changing my behavior, making things right and all that stuff. But how do you actually make amends spiritually? I, know how to, I, I can understand, like, the need for that on a personal level with someone across from you. But how do you do this spiritually when you've done things that have really peeled your heart away from God? When you've put a separation between you and him, when you've rebelled and ignored him, in your life, like how do you repair that thing? And honestly, there is a limit to what you can do because you really need God to do a lot of that for you. In fact, 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the gospel right there. In other words, what, what we're being told here is that we can't fix our broken hearts and our toxic attitudes or kick our addictions or repair our relationships on our own. It is impossible. In fact, if you could do this on, the, on your own, you, you probably would have already done it by now. But a lot of us feel trapped by certain patterns of actions and attitudes and we can't seem to make things right within ourselves, by ourselves, and we have to get to this place where we can admit that there is something wrong, that there's, like Paul says, there's, like there's something uh, that has gone deeply wrong inside of me, and it gets the better of me every time, we, where we acknowledge this as well, and we just humbly ask for mercy. Humbly ask God for mercy. Now back to the kid who breaks the iPad, right? So you're there, they got tears in their eyes, they feel bad, they ask for forgiveness, which you are willing to give them because you love them, you're not gonna put them on Craigslist because they broke the iPad, I don't think you can do that, but uh, uh, you're not gonna, you're not, you're not gonna I don't know, uh, never had the thought. Uh, how, much, how much can I get for these guys? Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, like at the end of the day, no matter how much uh, they are remorseful and they feel bad and have asked for forgiveness, at the end of the day, you're still out an iPad aren't you? Because like your child doesn't have the means to replace it, right? They, they're unable to do that. So what do you do? As, what do you do as a parent? As a parent, you pay the price. You pay the price. They, they don't pay the price. They're unable to pay the price. And this is really what Jesus does for us. Look at this idea. Like Jesus bridges the gap sin created by sacrificing himself on our behalf, he reconnects us to him at his expense so the relationship can be put back together even if the situation can't, big thought. But restoration requires repentance every single time. Requires repentance. We have to come to the point where we acknowledge 
and that we don't have it all together, that there's some things that are off in our life. But I don't think a lot of us are wanting, uh, wanting this, like really wanting to do this. I think what a lot of us want is something that God is really not offering, which is part of our tension between us and him. Like we want the guilt to go away even though we may not be sorry and we have no intention to stop the thing that we feel guilty about. We just want it to go away. But like that isn't really what God offers us. He doesn't offer that. And this isn't how guilt works. That's, that's really how painkillers work, right? To, to sort of numb you out but they don't address the root issue. God isn't interested in giving you numbness that's not something that he offers. He's offering healing and restoration and freedom, none of which you can ever access while you are in denial. You gotta acknowledge. You have to come to a place of repentance. Okay, so to recap here, all right, if you've been following, we've all sinned, check, right? We've all damaged our relationships, check. We've all invited death into aspects of our life and our souls. Despite how big or small that action or attitude is, it necessitates mercy from God to make us right with him and to empower us to make amends in different areas of our lives. It has to. And so, and so all sin is basically the same, right? No. No, it's not. Like we've heard it said many times that sin is sin, that all sins are equal, that all sins are basically the same. That even though your sins and my sins are different, they're the same before God. Like a lot of things, you know, this statement sounds true. Like a lot of the statements we've been evaluating in this series, but it's not entirely biblical. And the last thing I want to do here this morning is suggest that there is like a hierarchy of sin in which we rate and rank uh, to determine which sins are the worst ones, right? I, like that's not the goal here at all, it only fuels our self-righteousness, um, which is a huge problem anyway, but sin is sin and that is true. But that does not mean that they are all the same. In fact, I want you to catch this thought. While all sin is equally wrong, not all sin is equally bad. Sin equally condemns the sinner, that's for sure. But it's not all equally bad. And this is especially clear regarding a, a few types of sins that we read about in the New Testament. Like one is uh, Mark 3, the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin, uh, where, where uh, Jesus, Jesus talks about those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, uh, that this is an eternal sin that will not be forgiven. And uh, people ever since have been trying to figure out what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Um, we're like, uh, yeah, I'm never saying anything bad. You know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think there's a whole lot to that and would require a whole nother sermon. I have, I have some theories on that, but um, we also see sin against other people as something that's, that, that, that it's really has a level of harshness to it. Uh, it seems to be a little looked at and viewed at differently. Also, sexual sin is looked at differently in the New Testament. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Paul says to the church in Corinth, who had, like, this church had, like, like a strange amount of, like, sexual immorality going on in their church. It, it's just a little wild. Like, um, this is where he, like, gets after that, that, that one guy for, like, sleeping with his stepmom. Like, he's like, yeah, you can't be doing that. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, if somebody had to write a letter to our church to tell us, like, that that was wrong, like, I can't imagine 
Can you imagine? Like, that's just crazy. And like, you should know this by now, but this is what's going on in the church of Corinth. They've just got a lot of uh, uh, carnality. Uh, they, they've really mixed faith and like the, the evil desires together into one, and it's, it's been strange. But Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Here's why. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is, this is a huge thought because we can think, well, like sin is sin is sin. All sin is, is basically the same, except that like there's a difference. Like all sin is equally wrong, but it's not all equally bad. Like, like the sinning against your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it houses, this is what houses like the presence of, and power of God in your life. Like we know that, that, uh, that the temple was, was, was destroyed in, in, in about 72 AD, right? And, and, and uh, that when the curtain was torn, when Jesus was crucified, it signified that the Holy Spirit or the presence of God was no longer housed in a building, but it's now housed in people. It's housed in you and it's housed in me that we are uh, the, the temple now of the Holy Spirit. The temple is no longer a building, but it is people. And so this is, a, this is a tough verse. And so he's saying, look, be careful. This is why Paul tells you, tell, you know, he gets a little more graphic in other places and says, this is why you don't unite your body with a prostitute. Like, it's crazy, right? And you're like, Paul, like, I get it. Like, I'm not, not struggling with that. Like, but he's like, he, I mean, he makes it clear. Like, this, you don't do that. This is your body that has been, uh, that is not your own. It's been bought with a price and it houses the presence of God, the, the, the spirit of God. And so you don't just do things with it that uh, whatever you want to do with it, right? And so interesting thing about this passage is it doesn't differentiate between different types of sexual sin, but it does clearly state that sexual sin is different from other sins because it, it's, it's, it's one that's internal uh, that affects your body. Um, so providing clarity here, and, and I'm gonna move on from that because you looked uncomfortable. Um, but providing clarity on this, okay? Um, the, things, the things Jesus said right, that seem to suggest that all sins are basically the same, are comments that are actually given to rebuke the self-righteous from trusting in their righteousness. He's not, when he says certain things, he's not equating sin, all sin as the same. What he's doing is he's addressing people who think that they're better than others, who think that their sin isn't as bad as others, and, and, and he's addressing them because they're, they're trusting in their own righteousness, Jesus says these things to keep people from ranking their sin and comparing their sin to someone else's life. A good example of this is, is in John 8, uh, where you know, he, you know, Jesus uh, comes to the rescue of the woman caught in the act of adultery, right? And, and, and uh, everyone's there with a stone ready to kill her. And he says, okay, well, whoever's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Now that can seem like Jesus is equating and saying, okay, what, you told a lie yesterday? That's just as bad as someone who committed adultery. That's not really what's going on here even though it may sound that way, Jesus is not attempting to equate sin as if they're all identical to one another. He's addressing the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy that is so often in us where we can look at other people and see how wrong they are but never look at ourselves and see how wrong we are. See, believing that all sin is basically the same can cause us to actually treat sin lightly 
Because if I look at my life and I don't see sin in me that's as bad as sin in you, I can go, well, it's, not, it's not really not that big a deal. And I can feel better about myself and I can allow things to exist in my life that shouldn't be there because at least I'm not as bad as you are. And this is the stuff Jesus was getting at, the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy where, where we, we, we treat sin lightly. But I think, man, if sin costs the Son of God his life, we should not be flippant or casual about understanding what it is and why it's a big deal. See, essentially, this is what Scripture teaches us, that although, sin, although all sins disconnect us from God equally, the consequences affect us differently. The consequences affect us differently. So like, is running a red light the same as embezzling millions? Um, it's like yes and no, right? It, it's, it's yes in terms of, it, you know, sin, all sin disconnects us from God equally, but it's no because uh, in terms of the consequences are drastically different. And I think we, we intuitively understand this, that the consequences affect us differently for different types of sin. And let me just give you a couple, couple examples that we see, like, or a couple, couple thoughts that I think we can pull out of Scripture. I think that, that the more we intend to sin, the more serious the offense so, so, so we read this in, in the New Testament. There's a lot of New Testament writers who talk about, like, if you go on sinning or, or if, you, if, you, if you continue to sin, and basically this idea that, like, like you, you're, you don't feel bad about certain things and you're intending to. Like, you know it's wrong and you're like, I'm going to do it anyway and I'm just going to ask for forgiveness later. Like, that that's a more serious type of offense before God because we're treating, like, like the sacrifice of Jesus, we're treating the cross pretty flippantly, grace pretty flippantly, and that's not what grace is intended to do. It's not intended to be something that we just take full advantage of so that we can sin as much as we want. It's meant to, to, to cause us to understand, I mean, what we've been given and how we don't deserve that grace and to propel us to living rightly before God. And then, and then another thought here I think, I think we get in the New Testament is the more serious the sin, the greater the ripple effect will be in our lives, and so I want you to think of the ripple effect of sin like this. You can throw that, that screen up there. Um, there's really four stages to it, right? There's the damage it does to you. So all sin damages you, whether you, you think it does or not. So um, whether it's, it's, it's uh, private or public sin, okay? It, it's, all sin has a way of, 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 of allowing uh, death into our life in certain ways, and so um, there's the damage it does to you, but then um, certain types of sin, like the ripple goes out because there's damage it does to the people around you. You ever, you ever seen that in your life? You ever seen a, something you did that was wrong and it affected those around you? Or, or, or you at least know the stories, right? You, you know every week that we're, we're hearing about, you know, politicians or crazy stuff where we're like, hey, that's affecting a lot of people more than just the, the, the person or the two people that decided to sin in the first place. A lot of people are getting affected. And then as a Christian, like our sin Eventually, especially as it, as it affects others, it damages the reputation of Christ. But I thought, I thought you were a Christian. You, anybody, anybody ever felt that, ever known that? Like, I thought, I thought they were living differently than that, and it begins to damage his reputation. And then, and then ultimately what happens is it, it, it does damage to the world at large. And I think that, that the, so I think that the attitudes, the thought patterns that we indulge in um, eventually determine the actions that we engage in. And this is why this, this thing is so important. Jesus makes it clear that our actions stem from the heart. Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that murder begins with hate. 
right? That adultery begins with lust, that an attitude or a repetitive thought that, that we indulge in eventually becomes an action. He's saying like, you can't just, just let yourself off the, off the hook because you haven't done these things. He goes, you gotta evaluate your heart because your heart wants to do these things and why is that in there? You see, sin blinds us to how big its ripple effect really is in an effort to convince us to toy with it and unfortunately, some ripples just can't be reversed. And I, and I, know, like, I know the gospel, right? I know that God can redeem things. I know that God can repair things. And, and yet at the same time, you can't go back and undo something that was done. It's impossible to do. It's been done. And sometimes that damage has consequences that we find ourselves living with uh, forever. And this is something that we don't want to talk about very often. Jesus says in Matthew 7, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. <laughs> Love Jesus. Uh, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, I think there's a difference between what these verses actually say and what we want them to say. I think we want these verses to say, look, 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 listen, you don't got any business talking to me because you've got stuff in your own life. Like, you know, um, so check your plank, bro. Like, we don't, I mean, like, we, we don't want to deal with it like this. We, we want, but what Jesus is saying here is literally the exact opposite. It's literally the exact opposite. He's saying this. He's saying, don't let the sin in their life keep you from confronting the sin in your life. That's what Jesus is saying here. Like, like, like where we, we believe, like, I don't really need to deal with all of that because, man, all sin's the same. You got your stuff. Jesus is saying, hey, don't do that. Don't let the sin in their life keep you from confronting the sin in yours. Like, that's, that's the trap that a lot of us fall into. We're like, man, like, I, I'm not as bad as they are. Like, they are not the standard. Other people are not the standard that we compare ourselves to. Jesus is the standard. We gotta confront the stuff. And so how do we confront sin? Um, both Jesus and Paul use the same word for what to do when our thoughts and actions are out of alignment with who we were made to be. They both uh, tell us to crucify these things. That's the word they use, crucify. This is how we are to confront our sinful Tendencies. What to crucify means means brutally, openly, systemically, and completely destroy something. This is what it means to crucify. You think about Jesus hanging on the cross, the brutal beating, and and and. But then you also think about the the nails driven through his hands and through his feet. You think about the the, the I mean the horrendous torture that he went through. I just wonder this, like. If we took Jesus' words seriously and we took Paul's words seriously to crucify things in our life that need to go, like what if we went after greed and anger and lust and and selfishness and jealousy and pride in our own life with this level of aggression? What if we just crucified them? Because this is what we are invited to do. But I think there's a lot of times where we're like, hey, you know, it's not that big a deal. Like it's not as bad as theirs. All sin, you know. All sin's the same. But you see, the thing is that the goal in pursuing God isn't just to do as little 
bad as possible, it's also to do as much good as possible. And the issue with sin is that it prevents us from doing the good that we ought to do. You just can't do both. Like, it just, it just feels margin. You only have so much left. And so I wanna just give you a couple thoughts and then I'm out. Um, and you guys can come on up. Look at this on the screen. Commit to the kind of good that will create the reverse ripple effect of your sin and remap your mind. Commit to the kind of good that will reverse, that will create the reverse ripple effect of your sin and remap your mind. And so, so I, I wanna just speak to a couple things. If you are somebody who struggles, maybe particularly in, in, in the area of like negativity, so w- to reverse the ripple, you've gotta force some positivity. You gotta force it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta force that in your life and it's gonna start to reverse the ripple. If there's people in your life that you just cannot stand, you know what you gotta do? And, and you know this is wrong. You know it's not okay. You gotta start to force some affirmation, some encouragement, write a, write a note, give them a little, a little gift. You gotta begin to reverse the ripple. Have a gratitude practice and repeat to yourself what you're thankful for. Start to do those things. Or maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you're someone who, you'd acknowledge that, that there's, there's definitely a level of selfishness where you can, you can be self-absorbed or self-focused, you know how you reverse the ripple of that? You force yourself to serve other people. You just do it. You force yourself to do that. You reverse the ripple effect of sin in your life. Or maybe you're someone who struggles with like materialism or greed. You're just like, I, I know, I just have like a propensity. There's a bent in my life and in my heart towards those things. You know how you begin to reverse the ripple? You force yourself to be painfully generous, painfully generous. Not just like more generous than others or someone else. You are generous to the point that you actually feel that level of generosity and it causes some pain. Like, I, I don't know, maybe that's, that's more than I've ever given. That's more than I've ever done for somebody. There's a level of pain associated with it, we could go on and on and on and on about how to reverse the ripple and like doing the opposite of the thing you struggle with and, and so that you can, you can just begin to kind of, you know, purify your mind and your life. But, but the truth is, is that for every negative action that takes us away from God's purpose and plan, there is a counteraction that pulls us to God. And we've got to look at that. We've got to look at the counteraction to the sin that pulls us away. What is the counteraction that pulls us to him? That is just about it. I'd like you to stand for a moment and I want you just to kind of stay with me locked in for just a second. I want you just to get your eyes up here on me for a moment, okay? I know you're tired and I am too. What if this message this morning is not for everybody else in your life. What if this is something for you? Think about that. What is it that you might need to stop doing so that you can instead channel that energy and that time and that money and that influence into something that is gonna build up other people around you? 
What if you decided today to stop saying that all sins are basically the same as a way of avoiding dealing with your own? What if today you decided to crucify the tendencies towards sin that exist in you and want to tear down your life? What if today you said, I'm, I'm going to crucify those things. I'm tired of them just hanging around. And so here's the questions, right? What do you need to address today for your sake, for the sake of others around you, for the sake of Christ and his reputation and for the sake of the world? What is it that you need to address in your life? Because the things that we do, the things that we think, they matter. And we, when we submit those things to Jesus, you know what happens? Our life begins to move in the right direction. It begins to count, begins to make a difference. And so would you just bow your heads for a moment? If you're just here today and you would just acknowledge, Pastor Jordan, as you're talking um, about sin, my favorite subject, um, uh, <laughs> it was a little heavy, thanks a lot. Um, as you were talking this morning, I just know that there's some things I need to address. Things that I've maybe justified in my life because I've maybe compared myself to someone else. I've just thought, man, you know, it's not, it's not really that bad. I, I've used justification to get around it and to allow, allow it to remain in my life, but, but I, I just know that I've gotta let this stuff go. I've gotta crucify some of these tendencies. I'm, I'm, I'm mindful that, that if I allow these things to stay in my heart, they actually could become actions, and that terrifies me, and, and I, need to, I need to get them before they grow bigger. I need to crucify them now. Can I just see your hand if you're here? It's time to just crucify some stuff. Time to just let it go, get it out. Cleanse me, oh God. I love, I love what David says in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, oh God. This is after he had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and had an, you know, an illegitimate child with her. He said to God, created me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And so Lord, we just come before you right now and ask for you to create a clean heart in every person in this room under the sound of my voice, God, where there are things that we've let in that should not be there. God, I pray that you'd come and do a cleansing work right now in Jesus' name. I pray, God, over every person today that we would just, we would refuse to get comfortable with sin. We would refuse to be okay with certain things because they're not as bad as others. God, I pray that that tendency to justify, that tendency to just allow things to grow that need to be stamped out, God, I pray against that spirit because that spirit does not come from you. And so right now, God, I pray for courage. I pray for courage right now. God, would you start to break everything off that needs to go? Would you start to remove everything that needs to go? God, every habit, God, every thought pattern, every addiction in this place now, oh God, I pray it goes. We send it to the foot of the cross in Jesus' name. Right now, I thank you that the blood of Jesus was more than enough, more than enough. God, to cleanse every heart in this room, to break every chain, to set the captive free. And so God, I pray now where there are those maybe in captivity, walking in a sort of spiritual bondage, not sure that things will ever quite change. Those who are walking in shame, identifying with their sin and their brokenness. God, I pray right now that you'd start to rename people. You start to remind them of, of, of the, the real name that they have. That when, what you see when you look at them is not their sin, is not their mistake, 
is not their behavior, but when you look at them, you see your child, you see your son, and you see your daughter. And so would you just collectively right now, Holy Spirit, would you lift the heaviness of sin off of the backs of your people in this room right now? Would you just lift the heaviness, the burden that all of this creates as we try to walk through life? Oh God, bring the guilt that we need to feel so that we can repent before you and stand right before you, God, right now. Would you just begin to take us, move us, shake us, God, rearrange our heart, do the heart surgery that needs to happen right now, oh God. Free every person here this morning. It is in the name of Jesus. Listen to me, it's in the name of Jesus. There is no greater name, there is no better name. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray this morning. The name above all names, the name that breaks chains, the name that breaks yokes, the name that, that when we utter it, darkness flees. And so we pray upon the name of Jesus today. Amen and amen and amen.